This is the Roaring Elephant podcast for the 25th of June 2019. As always, I'm joined by my co-host Dave and, uh, well, just a head warning for our audience. I do have a studio audience today consisting of a wife, a very nice person and a dog which is uh, on uh, <laughs> visiting as a guest, let's say. So there may be some interruptions in this otherwise perfect podcast. Surely every one of our episodes is perfect. <laughs> or is every one of our episodes otherwise perfect? Anyway. Um, uh, that's doing this for Moving me. Moving on. <laughs> um, my audience just gave me the kill you sign later, or kill you later sign. So everything is going as normal. Anyway, perfect. it's a news episode. It is. And we have some news. Um, yes, and in my case, I must admit, it's a bit of older news because the uh, well, last news episode was about the Cloudera news. Too much news in one sentence there, but still, it's a news episode. That's all fine. Uh, so we had kind of bumped our articles we had for that uh, episode. So we're a bit minor, a bit outdated perhaps, but they're still relevant, I think. Indeed. Um, but I think we also have news for our Patreons, do we not? Yes, we do. Uh, we actually have a new perk for our patrons. As our listeners might recall, we had Jean-Georges Perrin on as in a couple of episodes talking about his uh, Spark in Action book, which is published by Manning Publications. And the uh, good people from Manning have actually given us a, a discount code we can give out to all our uh, listeners or our patrons and that uh, discount code is actually valid for 40% on everything in the Manning store which is actually quite nice so if you're a much so. yeah so if you're a patron you'll actually be able to see that code in the uh, private section of the patron site all very hush hush all you need to do is be a patron there's no um, tier limitation there if you're a patron at any um, sponsor level you will get that code and you'll be able to use it as often and as much as you want so there you go 40% off all Manning publication books for our Patreons don't say we never give you anything <laughs> yes and we can't even use it it's only for you guys uh, we should Indeed. become patrons for our own show that's an idea anyway big thank so you to Manning publication circular <laughs> <laughs> big thanks to Manning for uh, giving us the codes and, yeah um, we will, re- we will remind people of this from time to time, I guess. I will also do a tweet about it, I hope. And, uh, yeah, that's uh, good news for everybody. Yeah, definitely. So, yet another reason to become a patron of the Roaring Elephant podcast. Um, so, yes, very much thank you to, to Manning for allowing this. Uh, it's, it's a discount code that I believe you can use as many times as you like. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, is that not is correct? Unlimited. It is correct. You can do whatever you want with it. So, yes, a great perk, I think, for our uh, Patreons. And, you know, it, it's a 40% discount off of any Manning publication books. And it's something that you can use as many times as you like. Uh, but of course, you know the the discount code may expire at some point in the future. So uh, don't delay. Become a Patreon today. Uh, <laughs> see what I did there? <laughs> yes, uh, but uh, to be honest, though, this is not a, a one month or something like that. It's supposed to be yeah, long term. It'll be here so, for a while. But uh, the sooner you're a patron, the sooner you can start saving money on buying interesting books. And I've been Indeed. taking a look at the uh, Manning Meep uh, store. All of their books there are in progress, and there's actually some pretty good stuff in there and uh well uh, keep listening to this channel and you will find out what you want to do with that <laughs> indeed 
Um, so as uh, Jon mentioned earlier, the last sort of uh, news episode we had was really focused around um, yeah, some of the things that happened around the uh, recent Cloudera news. Uh, one of the sort of things that uh, came from that is we had a really great email from a guy called John in the uh, greater Chicago area. Hey, John. Um, giving us some feedback on the episode. Yes. Hey, John. Um, great feedback. Uh, great email. And uh, yeah, we really do appreciate uh, and do read each and every email we uh, or notification or LinkedIn message or all sorts of other sort of messages that we get. Um, but, uh, you know, we really do appreciate all the feedback that we get, but this was a particularly good email and, uh, the, the feedback was, was very much spot on. So thanks John for, uh, everything that you mentioned and, uh, yes, keep that feedback coming in. Yes. Everybody, please let us know what you think so we can uh, improve for you. Indeed. <laughs> on to some news, I think. Uh, yes. Let's go hunting. <clears throat> all right. So this is a uh, an article from Forrester. Now, occasionally I have, I'm not saying it's, I would say issues with Forrester articles, but sometimes they're perhaps a bit less um, detailed than you might hope, mainly because they're obviously pointing you towards mm-hmm. some of their um, paid-for resources, yeah, as is a little bit the case with this. Yeah, exactly. But this is uh, an article that's around um, external data, and I I think this article is a little bit more interesting than some of their normal stuff because, so first of all, it is a a review or a set of takeaways based on um, a webinar they delivered that is yours for the wonderful price of <laughs> lots of money. Um, we but don't get a the, cut, so we don't care. <laughs> yeah, indeed. But the the summary here is is about sort of people using external data um, in well, big data or data driven platforms. Um, talking about the fact that many organizations, their own internal data isn't enough. And, you know, there's some there's some very well-known examples of external data sources that people can use, everything from, you know, public weather data services through to um, open government data, uh, things like that. But it's, it's just a, a quite an interesting view when people are talking about um, the process that they use for data sourcing within their company. Um, so first of all, how many organizations actually have any sort of formal process? Um, 44% of respondents said yes, while 56% said no, suggesting that 56% of the people listening, just like random external data sources just pop into their systems. Mm-hmm. Mm, seems but, a little bit suspect, but, but entirely plausible. But this one says data sourcing within the company. So that's even not external data, but just data that exists in the company itself. Uh, formal maybe. process for data sourcing within their company. So that's not even looking outside. But that could be the inside. that could be the process within their company. Uh, okay, fair enough. That's how I read it. Okay, that's enough. how I read it. Anyway, um, because it's it's talking about yeah, if you look okay. at the yeah, infographic yeah, next to it, it says do not have a formal process for sourcing external yes, data. But actually, a good point. It's badly written highlight there. Anyway. Um, so the the webinar is all about this role of a data hunter, which I think is, um, I, I picture someone in a loincloth with a spear um, <laughs> a loincloth, and spearing yeah. kind of bits of data, um, which actually might be a good look for some people. Who knows? 
And the sort of next question they asked the audience was uh, if their organisation had a data hunter role. Thirty-three percent said yes. That seems surprisingly high. Yeah, um, and sixty-seven percent said no. I'd agree with that. Um, I, don't, I haven't seen many people go on Safari on a data safari. No, but I mean, maybe this is the new paradigm: data safaris, data vacations. Um, what else could you do? It's also, of course, the thing that when the Forrester uh, organization asks a question like this, it's always the person that's giving the answer that's interpreting the the, the question, right? Because if I'm yeah. a customer and I say, well, I have a couple of data scientists, they work with data, so they are my data hunters, which is not the same thing as a person that actually scours the the outdoors for interesting data sources that nobody else has found yet. So it's also with a spear wearing a loincloth, just to be clear. <sighs> this is not a fetish show, so please, please keep it a bit uh, clean, okay? Don't lose loincloth. Uh, <laughs> but so. it's I've I've not seen a. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense to me to yeah, have definitely. someone or have a role of someone that's particularly focused on getting good external data sorts data sources from you know trusted uh locations you know and going through some sort of verification validation process on them curation yeah and and, you know keeping those in in some sort of semblance of of being updated i i can i can absolutely see you know uh, a role here but is this i mean is this part of data engineering is this part of you know i'm not sure i can see like this being someone's full-time job necessarily no i actually would say that this is not part of the technical uh, role i would even say it's more of a marketing kind of thing not in a marketing a reverse marketing let's say because at the moment most organizations use data sets that they get pushed to themselves somebody has done something interesting gathered data sends out a spam email to the whole world saying we have this list of data for you to consume if you want it costs x amount of dollars and you then decide to pay or not pay for it without having done any kind of curation but just hoping that it is what you want at sea is more of a communication thing more of a when I say marketing, I don't mean the guys that write the nice flyers and lie to you. <laughs> but the marketing that looks at how the company is positioned in the environment, in the ecosystem, in whatever business vertical or horizontal you're in, and see how you match up with the others and how you can differentiate yourself, which I think is also part of marketing. How do you make a product that differentiates from the rest? And then you tell the engineers, okay, this is what would be great if a product could do this. Mm-hmm. not sure if marketing is the right word there but that's the idea I had behind it because it's those people because you don't want to go to the as you said you have the weather data out there you have the Twitter um, fire hose those things everybody knows about you don't need to go hunt for those those are the ones everybody uses already anyway so you won't get any differentiation from those anyway you want to have somebody look at the position of your company and how different companies are doing things and how you can do things different from the different companies okay I'm, I'm making circles here but yes yeah. you are but uh i think it, i i think i understand your point but, <laughs> no, but that's one <laughs> yeah but if i mean the i'm not quite sure about your view on this this you know needn't be a, a role in the the, the technical mm-hmm. realm because 
I think the important thing for me around this is is the sort of the validation of that data and how I mean anyone can be become a a data broker and say I've got all this amazing data on all of these things but you know there needs to be some sort of um verification validation that that data is you know somehow yeah. broadly correct uh, true which I think that's that's a that's a technical role surely uh, yeah but i'd say that goes it goes in the second step because you first have the hunter that shoots the wild uh, the, the big game and then you get mm-hmm. the the butcher that takes the, the lean cuts of meat from the from whatever you shot if right. uh, i think that if uh, i believe if my opinion and that's of course true is that if you put this in the hands of a technical person you'll have people looking for technical data which limits the scope and mm-hmm. sure that the, the a part of the curation needs to be done by the data engineer is this data reliable source? Will it, if it's a daily thing, will it actually come in every day? Can we consume it every day? Is it in a sort of yep. format? Blah 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 blah. But there's also curation on: is this data interesting for us or not? Is the company delivering it or the source delivering it? Because it shouldn't necessarily be a company; it could also be a refrigerator for all I care. Is that a reliable thing? Is the data something we can trust, or are we going to risk uh, bad press because we base stuff on the bad data and now we're in a crisis somehow? Yeah, and. I think to do to do good data hunting, you it's you'd have first the step of data source hunting, <laughs> and then data set yeah. hunting. If if that makes any sense, yeah, yeah, it does, it does. Um, so the final thing on this uh, particular uh, set of questions was people were asked where they source external data, and the kind of there's no real surprise that the uh, um, you know top. Uh, results were sort of open data from governments um, and data aggregators and data originators, web yeah, crawlers. Those were all of right. the most, exactly, all the most sort of common data sources um, with things like data marketplaces and data brokers in sort of uh, second place there. Um, and then the sort of in last place, which... I sort of find, on some ways, I find surprising, in some ways not, is companies commercializing their data. Um, and that's sort of down in third place with only 32 or 33%, 32%. I think, yeah. of people uh, um, sort of uh, using that. So I, with so many organizations, you know, trying to find alternate business models, you know, beyond just mm-hmm. um, you know what they're used to. There's so many more organisations are doing something with commercialising their data that I'm somewhat surprised that that is as small as it is. But I mm. think it's just a case of uh, just adoption. Um, so people are definitely getting to the position where they're trying to commercialise their data, <laughs> but I don't think that many organisations are ready to consume that data yet. At least that's my. My feeling, my guess. What do you think? Yeah, I think it's definitely part of it. But I think a bigger part, perhaps, is the fact that companies that are commercializing their data are selling it to data brokers, who then sell it to the consumer. Yep. Because if you sell, it, if you do it directly, then you become responsible for the sanity and quality of that data stream. Let's call it that. If you sell it to mm-hmm. through a data broker, then it's like, okay, my computer crashed last night, so the update didn't happen. A data broker, it's your problem. <laughs> so yep. Because a lot of companies that are indeed commercializing their data are new to this, as you say. So they haven't got the checks and balances in place yet to make this a real robust thing, perhaps. So having a second party in, in, in between, let's say, who can buffer 
both the data set and the complaints coming in, perhaps, uh, or the user interaction, let's call it that, uh, may, might make sense at this point. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I can definitely see that uh, companies commercializing their data may want some degree of separation between that, so maybe mm-hmm. it's all it's yeah. all feeding into uh, that. The one thing I'm missing in this graph, actually, is the amount of data coming from there. Because, yes, everybody mm-hmm. takes open data from government, but is that... 80% of the data that they're working with or 10% enrichment data. Only 33% take from the companies commercializing their data. Is that the 10% enrichment or is that 90% of your data state? That's not visible in this uh, graph and may give us a, a distorted view here. Yeah, no, very true. Because who still uses so, crawlers? Come on. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's that's a bit about external data. How about external partitions? Hey, hey, see what I did there? Yeah, that was kind of the worst one I've ever heard, but it's okay. I'm trying to think of the word, but I can't think of the word. It's a... Transition? No, not transition. It's a whatever. It's an article I found on... It's a guest blog on the Cloudera site by mm-hmm. Adir Mashiach, sorry if I butchered that, who is actually, according to LinkedIn, uh, a big data architect at the Israel Ministry of Defense, so you have to be nice. And it's a pretty technical blog, to be honest, on a small file problem. Now, I'm going to talk about this article in two ways. First, I'm going to talk about the content itself, which I think is pretty much okay. His problem is his data comes in with increments, which is quite normal in uh, big data mm-hmm. things. You have a data set to start with, which is a big bulk ingest, and then it uh, gradually grows over time, let's say. And he's using Hive uh, to do some queries on there, and he has a problem where a query over 20,000 partitions, i.e. files, is just an over, in, enormous overhead because yeah, it, there's, there's a lot of, um, how do you call that, uh, organization going on behind the scenes. You can't really do big uh, map reducers. You have to do a lot of map reducers to make it all come together. And he uh, had the challenge of re, uh, how do you say, reorganizing, rationalizing perhaps his uh, Hive partitions to make sure he had less small files and more big files <laughs> to make his queries more performant. And he had to do this in a way that did not affect uh, production. Because uh, the obvious easy thing to do is to do a create table as select from, just create a new table, dump the old table and you're done, right? He yep. wasn't able to do this because this had to happen normally. He could not have a, a moment in time where you had the old data uh, or the historical data in the new format and the new data in the uh, still old coming in to do the switchover. So that was uh, his problem, basically. And he actually goes through three uh, different ways of solving this problem. Mm-hmm. Now, he didn't solve the problem completely in any of them. That's why he, I think he uh, actually offers all three of them because all three had a good and a bad part, a good and a bad yep. side, let's say. But um, he actually shows you how to do it. There's the uh, typical way. There's then... Uh, Let's go through the article a little bit. There's a select statements, the hive statements, how to create his, uh, how do you call that, uh, tree structure for the hive files. And it's a pretty interesting blog if you're actually in this issue, if, if you actually have this problem where your original data source gets bigger, 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 a lot of small files gets added, you will hit this at some point probably. And uh, this gives you some nice ways of doing this. 
Now, this is the one part of the article discussion, which is purely on the technical merits, let's say, which is pretty well laid out and uh, rational, reasoned out and explained why and how, which is great. Looking at the summary at the end of it, it starts with, don't store small frequently queried tables in HDFS, especially not if it consists of a thousand files. Store them in some other place, like in a relational database management system, MySQL, PostSQL, etc., or in Apache Kudu. Well, he was also working with Impala, so there's some Clara stuff. And it is a Clara blog, of course, so Kudu needs to be in there, I guess. Uh, if yep. you understand the Hadoop ecosystem. And basically, this kind of uh, summarizes my problem with the, uh, the with the whole idea of this uh, article. Before I go into that, any feedback from you? Anything you want to talk, talk about here? No, no. I think uh, you have covered it well. But uh, yeah, we both, we both have these the same feedback for the overall article. <laughs> and to give uh, to start with that feedback, let's go to the beginning of the blog where he talks about his problem. Uh, and I'm quoting here: I don't know if any of you try to scan twenty thousand partition files to read twenty gigabytes of data, but the overhead is enormous. Um, uh, no shit. Yeah, at this point, <laughs> my my brain just screams: You're doing it wrong. I mean, yeah, yeah. Twenty gigabytes of data is is just—it's not a big data problem. And just to make sure like, people understand here, he's not talking about twenty thousand twenty gigabyte files. No, his no. twenty thousand files together are twenty gigabytes of data. Now, I've said yeah. her before, and actually somebody tweeted to me saying this: if it fits on a hard disk, it's not big data. Yep. Not entirely true. If you're doing streaming stuff, you have the velocity part of it. Yes, but this is just Hive, so we're not talking about velocity. This is batch querying. If it Indeed. fits on a hard disk, even a hard disk from the 1980s, almost. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, You're kind of using the, 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 the tools wrongly here. And the, the thing is that if he, the summary says, actually, exactly that, uh, don't store it on HDFS, use an RDBMS, Yes, exactly. Put it in, a, in, a, in some kind of a database. It, it'll fit. It'll be a lot easier to put it incrementally in there because it's just the same database at that point. You don't have this discrete file problem. It'll just solve your problem for you. Using Apache Kudu, that's why I kind of stumbled on, on that one uh, in summary. I don't see that as a solution at all because if memory serves and Kudu is more of a NoSQL storage layer that can be used to do kind of aggregate uh, queries... So yeah, sure, it could work. But again, if it's 20 gigabytes of data, you don't need a cluster, man. Yeah. Moving really? on. <laughs> <laughs> but again, I don't want to... Here ends the public service announcement. <laughs> I do, I do want to say that on the technical part, on the way he does his uh, the SQL statements to do this exercise of, my, of merging all these small files, it's still interesting information and definitely usable. Yeah. It's just that if you're having this problem and you're talking about a lot of files together being less than a terabyte of data, you should look at other solutions first before you start doing this. Indeed. Anyway, link will be in the show notes, of course. Uh, thanks to Adir for making a otherwise excellent blog post. And uh, that's all we have to say about that one, I think. I think so. So let's round out with something... We haven't super. talked too much about... Oh, don't talk about super, because that's something I have for next week's uh, news episode. <laughs> but if you, this is super. Um, yes, and it's also related with the other super, but we'll talk about it. 
Um, again, somewhat an older article, but the uh, Cloudera news kind of superseded it last time. But this was the article about uh, HPE, the enterprise uh, branch of uh, Hewlett Packard, acquiring supercomputer leading uh, leader Cray. So Cray Computing, which was a remnant when Silicon Graphics kind of went bust uh, a bit of a decade ago, I guess. Mm-hmm. And both Silicon Graphics and Cray, uh, together with IBM, I guess, are the big granddaddies of supercomputing in the world. I know there are yep. a couple of other companies doing this, and there's a lot of companies doing supercomputing through clusters, typical BOL clusters, where you just uh, put enough, like a Hadoop cluster. Hadoop is also a kind of HPC, but this is a different yeah. kind of HPC, right? This is HPC, you have a single memory environment with big interconnects, uh, InfiniBand interconnects and stuff like that. If your Hadoop cluster looks like that, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> so this is a different kind of uh, supercomputing. And IBM, Cray, and Silicon Graphics were the three big ones. Silicon yeah. Graphics uh, disappeared about a decade ago got taken over by uh, Rackable, I guess, which then got acquired by HPE. Cray also now go to HPE, so HPE kind of gobbled up the whole Silicon Graphics and uh, Cray uh, ecosystem. IBM is still out there. Their super uh, power PC, sorry, is still, you had super in my mind now. Their power PC (laughs) systems are still quite uh, out there, but... They're pretty much the only ones still remaining of the old granddaddies of supercomputing. Although HPE still um, still offers SGI s- systems, ironically. Mm-hmm. Uh, they do. The thing is that... The For certain values of SGI. Uh, yes. It's not the SGI that, uh, <laughs> that you and I remember. Let's put it that way. No, and it's not the company itself per se. It's the interconnects, because that's what I, what I meant before, what I really mentioned that when, when I was talking about it. What made Cray and a, a Silicon Graphics supercomputers so special, and still uh, also the IBM ones, is the interconnect they have. If you think that PCIe version 5, which has been announced this week, gives you fast speeds, well, these companies were doing those kind of speeds 20 years ago. Yeah. had a huge cost. <laughs> that stuff oh, yeah, is not course. cheap, of course. And if you look at the new Silicon Graphics computers HPE is selling, they're very much closer to the uh, standard, let's pull a, put a bunch of uh, servers together, put some uh, InfiniBand, sorry, put some gigabit inter- Ethernet in between, and we have a supercomputer, which works, by the way. It's not a bad design. It works. But it's... But it's closer to traditional. It's closer to the traditional HPC world of things than the supercomputer world of things. Yeah, I mean, just like the Linux white boxes have overrun and totally trampled the old HPC high-performance high supercomputing uh, world, mm. these things have remained in that area. There's no new interconnects coming out. I mean, the real, if Silicon Graphics and Cray were still doing their thing today, they would have interconnects that are 40 times faster than InfiniBand is today. And that just doesn't exist anymore. And that's, of course, due to a lot of reasons, both technical. I mean, copper has been out and of uh, the picture for a long time due to uh, latencies and heat. Uh, superconductors at uh, zero uh, degrees, uh, real zero degrees, uh, to make it work even faster than light and stuff like that. Okay, that doesn't possible. I know. But there's, there's different reasons why this isn't happening anymore. But uh, I thought it was kind of a, yeah... Um, it's, it took my it took my heartstrings a little bit to see Cray also now being uh, yeah gobbled up by HPE and probably also going to suffer the same fate. No more sexy hardware out there. That being said, 
More super. Aha, there is other stuff happening in the supercomputing world. And this is something that's been going on for a while, of course, and that's uh, GPUs. Now, before GPUs, you had ASICs, uh, the, the, the programmable reader aids, uh, programmable programmable. FPGAs, yeah. Thank you, I can't say the word. FPGAs, thank you. Uh, being out there to put in your systems, those were very hard to program, and each FPGA needed to be programmed in its own little way. GPUs didn't make things faster or better than FPGAs ever could, but they did make it single approachable. If you had one GPU, well, it didn't matter what other GPU you had, as long as you had the same library, you could program for it and uh, copy your software and uh, make it, I don't know, a viable product, I guess. And this week, uh, NVIDIA's in the world, it's, it's in the news, the world news, uh, talking about how their GPUs will make AI software run faster. Which is, it's sort of an, uh, I mean, although it's in the news, it's really just a, a continued extension of what they've been um, bashing away at for quite some time now. They're sort of, the availability of um, GPUs or the usability of GPUs in the ML, AI, HPC, supercomputer space has been kind of ramping up or ratcheting up over the last kind of couple of years, really. Yeah, but the difference is that where up until now you had supercomputers and the owner said, oh, uh, okay, let's add a rack with GPUs that if somebody wants to do a matrix calculation, they can use it on the GPU nodes of the supercomputer. Mm-hmm. It's now switching to, you, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, you can't have a supercomputer unless you have GPUs everywhere. Yep. And this also illustrates a little bit the limitation of uh, supercomputing, because if you're not doing straightforward matrix compli- uh, calculations, your GPUs, which are massively parallel and are great for matrix calculations, won't help you much. <laughs> now, a yeah. lot of these HPC things are basic matrix calculations, things like weather predictions, uh, genome sequencing, uh, medic- med- medication, drug-related uh, match. It's it's all, always a problem of finding the right peg for the right hole, which means mm-hmm. try every single single uh, combination until one pops out that is good. <laughs> and those are great on GPUs. And typically that's what uh, supercomputers are being used for these days. That and cracking codes, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, not then we're mining Bitcoin on GPUs. It's all about the supercomputers. That was going to be on my next point. That's one other reason why uh, <laughs> NVIDIA, I think, is putting this uh, up and now saying they're listed on the 500 most powerful supercomputers in the world. Um, well, being in the top 500 is like being the, the top million fastest runner in the world. It's like, yeah, right. If you're in the top 10, that would be good. <laughs> but they yeah. need to do something because the, the whole crypto coin thing has pretty much ground, ground, ground to a halt. Yeah, ground to a halt now. Hold now. Yep. Their uh, stock has been, uh, let's say, touched by that. They need to do something. Their commercial-grade GPUs, the whole RTX line, hasn't been that big a flyer either yet. And they also just released a new super version of their graphics cards. That's why the super is everywhere now. (laughs) They used to have TI things, now they're super things, whatever. Uh, But this is definitely a growth uh, uh, thing for them. And the advantage they have is that they're not linked to a CPU uh, vendor. Because if you go to uh, Radeon, which is, of course, the uh, AMD competition for NVIDIA, you also go into the AMD world of CPUs, of course. And if you're having supercomputers, which are typically still based on Intel cores, uh, are probably going to get a better deal from NVIDIA, I guess. I don't know. 
Well, so speculation at the moment, <laughs> at the moment. So, looking at the top five hundred, actually, the top two IBM built supercomputers are both uh, Power Nine CPUs, IBM Power Nine CPUs, mm-hmm. and NVIDIA GPUs. Yeah, but those, um, that's a situation where they have a supercomputer that has some GPU in it. Um, can you see the there's different lists, uh, lists out there, and some of those are rankings based on CPU, like compiling the the, the, the Linux uh, <laughs> or floating point operations, things like that. And some of there are based on GPU things, and it's definitely a case that GPUs are creeping up, definitely. But I don't have the list in front of me, so I can't really comment. And I should shut up, I guess. <laughs> I think so because I'm just look. I say I'm just looking at the top500.org, which is as far as I'm aware is the yeah that's the one the the list for um rankings of supercomputers hpcs call them what you like um and it that to me it does look like it's fully um yeah fully cpu and gpu enabled everywhere all um, the things yeah but see that they're also they're just giving you a petaflop number and they don't tell you how the petaflops are being uh, split across the GPUs and the CPUs. Again, I don't know the details either. I may be totally wrong, and you may be completely right. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> That's the quality of news you get from this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, for but, me, it was more yeah. of a, a signaling of a kind of passing of the guard, I guess, where Intel, yeah. uh, sorry, where a CPU-based supercomputer is being more and more phased out in favor of GPU-based supercomputing, which made, makes total sense, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, the GPUs have been accelerating far faster than CPUs have for quite some time. Um, you know, IBM have oh. made some strides forward with power, sure, but not at the same sort of rate. The sort of massively parallel um, acce- you know, acceleration possible through GPUs has continued oh. to stride forwards in far more far faster than it has in gpus i know we've got many many cores in sorry far faster than it has in cpus i know cpus still today many many cores but i think uh, what we're seeing here is this the blend of that sort of side of things taking over yeah it's kind of funny actually because it's a perfect mirror of the horizontal vertical scalability issues you have in software as well because a cpu yeah. That's always a vertical scalability. You can make the CPU faster by putting more power through it or something like that or making the, the, the how do you call it, the execution chains come more complex, which is, again uh, has negative connotations as well. A GPU, that's horizontal scalability. They don't get more, uh, I'm going to use the word complex. No, you just add more cores to it. If you yeah. look at the CUDA cores on a single GPU, they're like uh, four or 5,000 on them on a, on a, on a late-gen Pascal Turing uh, architecture, I think. Well, on the CPU, as you said, well, I think the biggest one is 56 cores these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's that's basically it's it, right? very different. But yeah. of course, CPUs, CPUs can do whatever you want. GPUs are good at one thing only, and that needs to be perfectly parallelizable. Things like matrix Indeed. calculation. Well, anyway. on that super note, unless there's <laughs> anything else from you, uh, nope. As always, I think we've done enough damage for one week. I think so too. And that, therefore, is all the time we have today. We are on YouTube. Please like, subscribe, 
ring the notification bell, all that YouTube-related stuff if you like or enjoy listening to the podcast on YouTube. Um, you can support this podcast by becoming a Patreon. Um, you get that sweet, sweet deal of 40% off Manning Publications amongst all of the other great stuff you get just from becoming a Patreon, mm-hmm. and every contribution really does help. Please go to www.roaringelephant.org for a link to our Patreon page, more information about the podcast, follow us on Twitter using the at HadoopCast tag, and send your feedback to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until then, my name is Dave. And my name is John. And we look forward to talking to you next week. Goodbye. See you then.